hello and welcome to a special edition of the Abundant Yoga Teacher Podcast. I'm Amy McDonald, yoga student, teacher, and yoga business coach. In this special episode, I'm taking you inside the Business of Yoga speaker series where you'll meet yoga teachers, experts, and entrepreneurs from all over the world. I'm not kidding. We're going to Melbourne, Singapore, London, Barcelona, San Francisco, New York, and more talking all things growing your yoga business. I hope you love learning from my guests as much as I enjoyed interviewing them. And if you do, please leave a review for this podcast. Enjoy. Hey everyone, it's Amy McDonald here. Welcome back to the Business of Yoga speaker series. I can't even begin to express how delighted I am to introduce my guest of the day, uh, Carlos Pameda. Welcome to the series. It is a really, it's such an honor to have you as a part of our lineup this time around. Thank you so much, Amy. It's so great to see you again. I was thinking um, while I was preparing for this session, and we'll talk about this more, I'm sure, as, as our conversation progresses, but the first time I encountered you, um, uh, and I, had, I didn't know it, how lucky I was at the time, but it was when I had just signed up for my first 200-hour teacher training, and I didn't know who Mr. Ayanga was, and I didn't know that there was such a thing as yoga pants, and I don't know how they let me join because I thought I knew what yoga was until I didn't. And pretty much everything that you said just went like straight past me. And I remember I was sharing a room with this woman who seemed to have like copies of the Gita just stored in every pocket. And I just felt like I was the biggest yoga loser that there was. But one thing I just loved about all of it was that you were the only teacher in the faculty who said, could we please put on the air conditioning? And I, <laughs> it was like the biggest boon at that time for me. <laughs> I like this guy because he understands about <laughs> thinking and climate control. <laughs> the, the practical side of life. <laughs> <laughs> that part of itself changed my life. But I think I've been following you around the planet, Carlos, for like 10 years since. And so um, I'm going to, for, for people who haven't had the good fortune to meet you yet, I will read out your bio so that people have a sense of who you are. And then we're going to jump into what I know is going to be just such a great conversation. So folks, here we go. Carlos was originally from Thank Madrid you. in Spain, and he's been steeped in all aspects of the yoga tradition during more than 40 years of practice and study. Kind of knows what he's talking about. He spent 18 of those years as a monk in the Saraswati order under the name of Swami Gitananda, including nine years of traditional training and practice in India. During this time, he learned the various systems of Indian philosophy and immersed himself in the practice of yoga, becoming one of the senior monks of the tradition and teaching meditation and philosophy to tens of thousands of students around the world. He combines this experience and traditional training with his academic background, which includes two master's degrees, one in Sanskrit uh, and uh, one in religious studies. He's currently working on a book uh, and some other things that we'll get to, which I'm going to buy like 10 times over and all of you should as well. He currently lives in the US and travels extensively around the world, conducting a variety of retreats, courses, seminars, workshops, and lectures on the wisdom of yoga and related subjects. As a teacher, I love this part because I totally agree. Carlos is renowned for the breadth of his knowledge and the clarity with which he conveys it. His great love of Indian yoga traditions, his insight, his humor, and his deep connection with his audience give him the ability to transmit the deepest scriptural teachings in a way that is clear, meaningful, and applicable. Studying with Carlos is an enjoyable and transformative experience. Jai, I agree. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. I've got to start with this question then, Carlos, because for someone who has been teaching and studying these topics for as long as you have, it, the last time I was sitting with you, it was, a, it was lectures on the history of yoga. And um, 
it actually, I find it just so um, inspiring the way that you can teach material to new audiences with such, you know, and, and convey it so beautifully. And I just wonder how is it that you can endure us, <laughs> that you can teach these, these lectures repeatedly to people who are brand new and ask stupid questions and, and yet you, you're, you're so open and sharing with all that you know. How do you keep on doing it? <laughs> I actually, I don't see it as an endurance test. I, I genuinely <laughs> enjoy sharing with people because, it's, you know, when you love something, Mm. There's so much joy in sharing it, mm. and that's how I feel. And I feel when I'm lucky enough to to meet with a group of people who are eager to learn, I'm energized by that interaction. You know, yeah. instead of feeling like, oh, this is so tiring, I feel the other way around. I feel inspired. Um, I was just in China, and and I see such interest. You know, like people are so thirsty for knowledge that is, you feel like you want to give more. And, and so I find, I mean, I, I feel very lucky myself to be able to share that because it's my passion, because mm. yoga has changed my life, literally 180 degrees. Mm. And it's what gives meaning to my life. And so to be able to share that with others and, and just, you know, when you get messages or somebody says something about how yoga has changed their life. It makes my day completely. I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, uh, at the end of our life, what we want to see when we look behind is that we've left something worthwhile. And and just to be able to share yoga gives me that feeling, that sense of purpose. So I'm always endlessly inspired. I, I wonder if that's actually at the heart of what makes a good teacher, like that inherent desire to share for the for the love of it. And, and to be available to people receiving your information wherever they're at on their learning journey. I think that's part of it because um, you know how it is. We are all attracted to people when you listen to a teacher or a speaker. It's when, when they love what they're talking about, it just comes through, yeah. right? They don't have to make any, any special effort. Um, when I see any talks online or in person and I see the same thing, when you see somebody who's passionate about their topic, I want to listen more. I want to hear more from them. Uh, the, the other aspect for me is that I see teaching really as a service. Mm. Uh, I think this is something that I learned when, when I was living in the ashram in India, that oh. we don't really teach to aggrandize ourselves or for people to admire. Oh, look, what a great teacher. It's not like that because that's silly. At the end of, again, at the end of your life, that means absolutely nothing, right? But... Um, this idea that we can help in whatever small way by offering our best and by meeting people where they are and helping them take their next step and empowering them, giving them the tools, uh, that type of service, I think, is the, is the most important part. And, and so, again, when you do that, it connects you with your own sense of purpose. Yes, and um, I still do think it takes a degree of grace to... Um, or maybe it's just that you've, I don't know, was I thinking about the sorts of things that people ask you and I, I've always found that you're, there is a grace there in receiving people's experiences and helping them understand things. And uh, I was talking with um, uh, Cassandra Missio in Sydney uh, a couple of months ago and I was telling her that she should have been there in Byron Bay and trying to get her to come to the next one. And I said, and gee, he's just so good about answering like dumb questions. So this is me and my judgment on it. You don't have that. You're just like available to 
I think that's an incredible skill. Well, you know, there's something that I owe to my guru. He literally uh, taught me that there's no such thing as a stupid question. Because he said, first of all, whenever we ask questions, we cannot help. We are wherever we are, right? Wherever we're at on our, on our journey. So that's how it is. So it's not for us to put somebody down because they're asking a question that is not at a higher level. Everybody's where they're at. And I was at that level also once. And so there's no sense of, of, uh, of judgment in that way. But also the thing that, that I learned from my guru is that you can use as a teacher, you can use any question really. If you're clear about your intention for the session and where you want to go and where, where you would like to lead uh, people, you can use any question then to go in, in that direction. And that's how I see it, you know, that sometimes I entertain questions that people think, oh, is he getting distracted? You know, are we moving off topic? <laughs> but sometimes there are questions that come up that I feel they're so helpful to illumine the inner journey and spiritual life that even if they are not 100% within the topic we are discussing, I like to entertain them because they are very helpful to give us a broader perspective beyond the immediate topic. So I think you can really use, if you're clear about your purpose, you can use any question that comes up and, and really believe it honestly that there's no such thing as a dumb question. And, and I wonder, um, where 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 that sort of teaching style comes undone a little is when the teacher is taking the comments and the questions personally rather than using them as a mirror to and and a teaching aid. Right, right. And the other thing is, you know, when I was in university, I realized that often there's like ego or pride that gets in the way that lots of people have a question, but nobody dares to ask, thinking, "Oh, maybe this is a stupid question." But when I was in class, I made it a point to ask all the stupid questions because <laughs> I paid for that class. You know? <laughs> I felt like, listen, I got to get my money's worth, you know, in, in that's what I'm here for. If I'm going to let my pride get in the way of my learning, that's really silly. And so I always made it a point to ask questions that may be stupid, but uh, so very often, I saw the relief in other people's faces, like they were glad I had asked the question. <laughs> Nobody was there to ask the question. So um, that's how I see it. It's, um, it serves the purpose of why we get together to study a topic. So. I also think that that's one of the boons of being an older student, is that you have more preparedness to get your money's worth by asking the dumb questions. <laughs> really, I think... Um, Getting older gives you a better sense of perspective about what really matters. And yeah. at the end of the day, uh, people's opinions and perceptions of you are not the most important thing in life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that maybe that's what the, the life journey is about, getting that lesson. I also think one of the things I love um, about coming to your lectures, Carlos, is, is your teaching style and the way that, because some of the stuff that you're teaching, like I said earlier, when I first, was like the bug of a what, um, it's heavy stuff. And what I love about your teaching style is the way that it's practical. Let's learn something and then let's do something and then let's talk about what that was like and then let's move on to the next piece. So it really feels like I'm assimilating what I'm learning from you as I go. To, to share a little bit more about your, your teaching style. It comes, uh, I think, with anybody who, who speaks publicly or, or teaches, I think that's how it goes. It comes naturally from my own process, right? So, and, and that has shifted over the years. Mm. When I first started, I was so ignorant. I mean, I never knew, you know, what yoga was or anything. So 
just being able to study when I first went to the ashram in India, I was devouring everything that I could find, you know, just trying to piece together all the pieces of the puzzle. Mm. And now I'm talking about a long time ago where nobody really had studied the history of yoga and nobody had put the, the whole picture together. I mean, this is, uh, you know, over 30 years ago. So um, in those days, it was just like a real thirst. And I was more interested in just sheer knowledge, just for the joy of the clarity. But as uh, I have... Uh, gotten older and also have advanced in my own practice, I feel that at the end of the day, the most important thing, once again, is the insight we get into the practices and the application, and not just learning for learning's sake. I mean, I do think there's tremendous value in, in learning because it, it inspires you, it gives you strength, it gives you clarity, you can help others, and so on. But at the end of the day, it's really the practices and, and the level of awareness that we develop that we will take with us. Mm. So my teaching also has, has evolved that way. I was much more theoretical years mm. ago. I was much more interested in like covering points, whereas now I'm much more interested in the insight. Mm. And in my own study, that's also the case. I mean, I, I read academic stuff constantly because there's such a wealth of, of new research coming out and I find it just fantastic to be able to to really delve into solid research and on the history and the evolution of yoga but for me that's only the beginning it's then is the question of applicability okay. so i think once again in terms of the craft of, of teaching and how to share yoga when we share our passion like we were saying before that's that's what comes through and also you cannot help it and and that's how i see my own my own process so I always try to go for the essence. Mm. If I'm reading or studying a particular text, okay, I like to get the big picture, but then I have to go for the essence. So what, at the end of the day, what is the main message here? Right? What are the main practices? And so that's why I like to summarize for people when we first study a text, like say like the Bhagavad Gita, you know, it can be quite confusing. You have 18 chapters, they seem to be all over the place. And so to be able to bring some structure, some sense of uh, clear outline, I find it very, very, very helpful for my own study and therefore also for teaching. So my method just comes from my own experience and from my own process. Mm. And, but I think just as a way of, for, for people who are watching who do, maybe they're doing teacher trainings or they're thinking about hosting one, actually thinking about the teaching methods and, and mixing those up so that so that the, what you're conveying actually can be received. By mixing up the methodologies you're using in a class, it helps people actually get what it is that you're sharing. Exactly. And as a teacher, something that has helped me a lot is to see, like when I read something, is to look at not only the content that is being transmitted, but how it's being transmitted. Mm. Mm. So I think we can learn a lot about the craft of teaching just by observing different teachers in action. But also when we read, when we read something that somebody has produced, look at their process. How do they present the ideas? How do they develop a topic and so on? What supporting material do they use? What analogies do they bring? You know, the craft. Mm. And, and so doing that, I think, can be also very, very helpful for anybody who, who teaches uh, yoga as a profession. And then maybe there's also, I remember being with a friend of mine, he was preparing for his first teacher training and he was teaching like the Ramayana with PowerPoints. And it was just like, 
I mean, I'm blessed. The slides were full of stuff and I can just imagine sitting there like clicking through. The, I mean, I don't, I don't know how long my attention span would last. You know, there, there, there's so much to share. People feel like they need to give it all at once. Right. And so I think there's a skill in knowing which small pieces are in service to people right now and what don't they need to know yet. Yes, and that's a big difference I find in, in say, an academic setting. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, for example, if I go to a university class, well, then I appreciate the amount of information. It's a very efficient way, the lecture format, to transmit a lot of information in a short time. Okay, great. And I'm just taking notes as fast as I can. Yep. But what I find is that very often academics, I've seen this, they don't know how to talk to a broader audience that is not a, an academic study audience. In other words, that it is possible to know too much. Mm. You know, where um, you need to be able to see the forest and not get lost in all the individual trees. When you know so much about trees, you can totally get lost in discussing trees and you're not giving people the full, the big overview. So I think that's always a very important thing to remember when, depending on the context, of course, if you are delivering a lecture in a, in a university, that's different. Yeah. But if you're just giving talking to a general audience, it's important to go for the essence. Yeah. And so for me, the a technique that I've used uh, always in, in my own teaching is to be able, I have to be able to tell to myself what the intention is of any given class or course or lecture or whatever in one sentence. Mm -hmm. If I cannot tell myself in one sentence what my intention is, means I'm not clear enough. Mm -hmm. I find this a really powerful technique. If you can express your intention overall in one sentence, that intention will pervade how you express yourself. And it's that intention that allows you, for example, when we were talking earlier about questions, is what allows you to integrate whatever comes, even a distraction that may come up. If you have an intention and, and you're clear in your intention and you're maintaining it, that intention allows you to integrate whatever comes up in the, in the process. So I find that that clarity and also clarity of purpose is yes. fundamental. It's, it's like what is the teaching outcome of this time? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. In one sentence. Okay, in one sentence. And sometimes yogis aren't great at being succinct. <laughs> 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 um, so, so in thinking about your history and your background and, and, and your passions, Another thing that I appreciate so much is um, the rigor of what you teach. And I, and I know as a, um, from where I sit in, in my yoga journey, it's not always easy to discern what's the, what are the things, where should I be learning from and what may be diluted to a point that actually um, it's, it's not, it's not um, true anymore. And, and how do I know the difference? I think this is, and as yoga becomes, you know, a household commodity really, there's a lot of dilution and maybe misinterpretation. How do we, how can we navigate that? That's a very tough one. Um, this issue of authority for me is very important when I study or when I read something, I always want to look at this, like what is the authority this person has? Mm. And we often get sidetracked by looking at, you know, motivations or agendas or, and yes, that is an important thing to keep in mind. If somebody has an agenda they may be twisting the material to suit their agenda. 
But that by itself doesn't tell me as much as I need. What I really need to know, independently of their agenda, is, is what they are saying authoritative or not. Okay. So a couple of things that I do. Number one is you look at the sources. So, for example, peer review. Uh-huh. Right, that was a, a fantastic development in, in academia, which ensures that something that is published has been scrutinized by other peers because none of us can know everything about every topic. So when I read something about a topic that I don't know about, for example, now I'm, I'm studying, there's a new area of studies called paleogenomics, which is uh, DNA studies of prehistoric remains. Uh-huh. Hugely important, and it also um, has to do with the history of yoga because it's a new field of science that has allowed us to map the movements of primitive people uh-huh. out of Africa, right? So this whole question about where the, where do the Vedic people come from? Does yoga come from India, or did it come from outside? All this paleogenomics has a lot to say about those. Yeah. Now I know absolutely nothing about paleogenomics. It's certainly not my field. So I'm looking at what do the, the peer-reviewed papers say? Right? What do other experts in the field say about this? And so by looking, first of all, at materials that have passed that test, then you know, okay, at least I can trust these sources. So that's the first thing that I would do with uh, materials pertaining to yoga. Yeah. People come with different levels of rigor into the field and yeah. they publish yeah. things with different levels of rigor. So by looking at this issue, has something been scrutinized by LPS or not? I already have a, um, a big clue right there. And the second one is looking at the evidence and asking, I'm always, always reading things with this sort of filter. I can't help it. It's something that has been ingrained in me over the years and certainly in my academic study, which is sort of a challenge there's a fine line between being negative and close-minded mm-hmm. where you're close to new information or being gullible, right? And so for me, that fine line is to take the stance of show me the evidence, convince me. Mm-hmm. So let me see what your evidence is and let me think through it myself. So does this evidence pass muster or is this person presenting opinions mm-hmm. or perceptions um, you know, we do that a lot as humans. I've been studying also another area that I'm absolutely uh, excited about because it's so helpful is this area of cognitive studies and looking at our cognitive biases and what gets in the way of critical thinking and so on. Uh-huh. So this is part of the process for me is first examine the evidence and second examine the conclusions that the person draws on the basis of that evidence. Uh-huh. Are those conclusions? warranted are there alternative explanations so for example as you know i talk about how people say well yoga comes from this particular area of india um, well now it's pakistan mohenjo-daro because there were these figures of people sitting in what appeared to be yogic postures and i said well there's other possible explanations that may not be yoga but just somebody sitting on the floor so don't jump to conclusions Mm. I mean, this is just a simple example, but so many people are just running with that and saying, this is the origin of yoga. You know, this is the oldest evidence of yoga. No, there's alternative explanations. If you have alternative explanations, then you cannot accept something as conclusive. So this type of critical thinking, I think, is very important if we are 
getting into any area of study for the first time. And so the same thing applies to yoga. I would say, first of all, look at your sources, see if they are authoritative sources, if they have been peer-reviewed. Number two, examine the data. What are the basic facts that this person is presenting? Are there assumptions there or are they facts? Hmm. Number three, look at the inference, the, the logical process, right? What conclusions are being derived from these facts? And do they pass muster or not? And, I love it, and it still, I imagine, must take a degree of time or study intensity, whatever, to, to be able to have those sorts of discerning skills. So I'm thinking if I've just done a 200-hour teacher training at the studio where I've been a student and I don't know, this is a, the Amy that showed up in 2009, I didn't know any better because I had no point of reference. It's hard to know that I need to be discerning at that point. And what, what comes to mind, though, then, Carlos, is this, that is not dissimilar. Like if I followed a, a modern lineage of yoga because that's my student, that's my teacher, and I just do that teacher training and I go on and, and essentially be her, it, it, what comes to mind is the, like the guru principle. And the same could be argued. Like how, at what point do we go and um, critically assess information and where is the role for simply the transmission and trusting that, this is like the truth and, and can be trusted. Actually, I find the answer to that in the oldest yoga sources, like the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita. When you see this method of what is called in Sanskrit, the samvada, the dialogue, uh-huh. it's the, the traditional way of teaching. It's a little bit of a Socratic method very mm-hmm. often. Yeah. You know, where you see the teacher is not just like presenting facts, but it's actually leading the student uh, through a process of discovery. Yes. And, and so I think it's the same way in, in dialogue. There's a fine line between, again, between being negative and being critical. Critical yes. is positive. Negative is not helpful at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. being close-minded. It's just being close-minded. Nothing can come in if you're not open. But at the same time, being gullible is the opposite end. So that's what I was saying is that for me, is the, the, that final edge, uh, or sorry, uh, the, the fine edge of uh, being in between the two. And I see that exemplified in all the stories where the student is thinking through. Mm. So here I see, I really like the methodology of the Upanishad, which I'm sure you're familiar with, which is that first you listen. And when you're listening, your goal is not to argue. Your goal is to understand. Right? At this point, it's too early to decide whether you agree or don't agree because you don't even know if you understand. Right? So, and, and this is an art that I feel we have lost. And you see it in popular culture. I mean, you see it in political discussion, for example. People are not trying to understand each other. They are already reacting even before the person has finished making their point. And, and so for study, this I find is so helpful is first make sure you know how to listen. Yeah, you're listening fully and understanding. Once you understand, then you think critically. Hmm. But, but first you have to make sure that you're understanding. So I think this, this aspect of, um, of give and take is just part of the process. It sounds like you're describing marriage counseling. I think you're quite accurate that we don't know how to do this anymore. <laughs> yeah, I see it in every sphere. It's true. Yeah. 
Um, have you ever, I mean, do people disagree with you? Do you have a strong objectors who know this is, yeah. you're wrong and this is right? Yes, but what happens, what I encounter, because most of the time and seldom do I talk to people who have been exposed to the same type of material and the same level of material, right? Yeah. That's a different type of disagreement. I mean, two people who are knowledgeable in one area can disagree, drawing from the same uh, factual basis. Yep. That's always a very productive exchange. Yeah. But in a classroom, that's seldom the case. I mean, normally if somebody is coming to study with you, it's because you have more knowledge or more experience than they do. Yeah. So generally, uh, what I find in that type of, of dialogue uh, can be what I'm describing, the resistance. Mm. Mm. Right? And that is not, it's not really helpful, but I also understand that it's something that some people have to go through. Maybe we all have to go through it at some point. And that's more really what I what I encounter. Now, that's it's also a cultural thing. You encounter that it's more in some places than in others. <laughs> I'm not going to name names. <laughs> it's very interesting, you know, when you travel, how some cultures in the world are more um, they tend to be more more critical in a resistant way, and some cultures tend to be more open. And in the ones that are more open, the questioning is always open and is very productive, you know. And then a person may say, well, okay, I don't know if I agree with this. Okay, that's fine. You, know, yeah. you may disagree. That's, that's part of the process too. But, um, but what I find that makes all the difference is the attitude of the person in their questioning. Are they simply having a reaction because you are saying something that challenges their worldview and cherish beliefs, which happens a lot in the process of learning? Or are they coming at it because they are enjoying the process of exploration and mm. they're, they're engaging in give and take with an open mind? Mm. It's a difference energetically in how mm. those two types of interaction work. So I, I encounter both. Uh, fortunately, I encounter more of the open-minded exchange than the other one, but, uh, but sometimes you do get this wall of resistance. I totally sympathize because, of course, we all go through this, that learning must mean letting go of old notions sometimes. And that is very often easier said than done. And it's those resistant questions that always make me just kind of want to melt into the floor when I'm watching the teacher and the student do that. It's, oh, God, I'm so, oh, just, I find it physically uncomfortable. <laughs> But, and that's why I love what the, I don't love, but I, I I appreciate how you handle those because oh man, it makes me uncomfortable in that situation. <laughs> I think you make a great point about teaching um, globally and the importance of being culturally aware in for to enable the teaching to happen. Because I've joined te te teachers in different same teachers in different parts of the world, and sometimes that doesn't always quite land and. And I think, um, and, and sometimes people can take it personally because they expect everybody to be the same everywhere, but it's not the case. Right. I, I wonder if you've got a tip or two for people who are maybe starting to teach in places that are foreign to them and how do you do that sensitively? I think um, a lot has to do with really listening. Also, as a, it's not only the student who has to listen, but the teacher. Yeah. For example, I remember the first time I taught in Japan 
socially and the culture is that you don't demonstrate emotion, right? So I was very surprised when I told a joke and nobody laughed. And I thought it was funny. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, happens to me all the time, Carlos, and not in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a bit unsettling. I remember that I was unsettled because I wasn't getting anything back. I had like these uh, sort of poker faces, what seemed to me poker faces. And so that forced me to listen with my heart. I don't know how else to describe it. That I had to tune into where people were at. But letting go of my expectation, I realized as I was speaking, fortunately, when you have a translator, you have more time to process, you know, because the translator is talking, so it gives you time to observe. And so that made it easier. But I realized I had to let go of my expectations. This is I'm in a different culture and one that is new to me. So let go of your expectations. Just see where people, try to feel where people are at. And when I started doing that, it was deeply moving. Because I felt there was so much love in the room. And this has been my experience since, and now that I know the culture better, is that Japanese people are really loving people. And, and, And the people I've known for years, my students, my friends, they're some of the most loyal friends that you can find. They're really beautiful people. So just because they are not demonstrating it outwardly and ah, you know, doesn't mean that they are not feeling it. Oh. So I think that's that was a big lesson for me. And one that has served me well in other cultures too is don't let go of your expectations, number one. And then, of course, the more you learn about the culture, the more that you can be appropriate, right? Like you see how they understand certain things. So, for example, now when I teach in certain places, like in Japan, uh, sometimes I tell people, you know, it's okay to laugh. (laughs) Or in China, it's the same thing. You know, I tell people, you know, I like to have fun. So be ready because I'm going to make jokes. I think it's easier to learn when we are in a light uh, mood and so on. And it's okay to laugh. So by understanding the culture a little bit better, also that allows you to sort of tailor your your message a little bit better. But the main thing I would say is 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 more listen with your heart. I remember I had a similar experience the first time I went to Germany. This was many years ago. That people were more serious and they were you know with more expressions like that. And but then when we had the question and answer session, I realized they had really great understanding like they really got what i was trying to talk about and they had really been thinking about it the questions were so thoughtful they were so good so again that tells you a lot when you have the dialogue when you have the interaction with people it tells you much more as to what's happening in the process one of the things that's been happening in china a lot because i also of course depend on translators is that sometimes people recapitulate what i'm saying like to test their own learning, they will say, okay, let me see if I can summarize. Are you saying, and they start making a summary. And more often, like most of the time, I'm like absolutely in awe about how well they have really been listening and how well they can articulate what I've been trying to communicate. So I think that is a much better indicator when you're in a different culture. It's a much better indicator of what's really happening than the outward um, expressions or, uh, you know, the outward interaction. 
because that's very culturally, it's different in every culture. The same thing with the formality of your language, right? In some, I mean, you go to New York City and maybe cussing a little bit will be hip, you know, but you say the same thing in a more traditional culture in Asia and it's like, oh, this person, you know, yeah. your appreciation will go down the hill very quickly. Yeah. So one has to also learn a little bit about the culture, I think, to, to be more culturally appropriate. And for me, that's also part of what we were saying about serving, right? Yeah. Um, teaching or speaking a service. That is not about us, it's about the people. So how can we reach them better? How can we communicate really better? The, the importance Some of, of it, sensitivity. Yes, exactly. Yes, that's, that's the key. Exactly. Yeah. It's an interesting question. So, um, so I want so there'll be people like watching that are thinking that's great, Amy, but um, I'm not, you know, I'm not getting to China anytime soon to learn from Carlos. We were you were sharing with me, and I was sort of very excited about before we started the camera uh, about some online things that are coming up that so that we can yeah. we can have you coming to our place, which is <laughs> very cool. Tell us more about this. Yes, I've been wanting to do more things online again. As I was saying, you know, I've been traveling a lot and I stopped then doing things online because it's very hard when you're going from place to place to place. Mm. Uh, but I've been wanting to travel less and do more things online, mm. which I love because it's such an amazing experience when people connect from different countries and different parts of the world. It's amazing. It's like a global, a global space that is created. And it always fascinates me how that is when everybody connects and you feel it when they disconnect also. So that the global part, I also love just to, to begin with. And the next thing I love is the topics. These are things that I've been wanting to do for a long time. And finally, uh, they're coming to pass. I may redo a course that I did last year on mantra. It's called The Secrets of Mantra, where we look at the practice of mantra uh, by looking at the history of the practice. And that was really, it was very well received and I really enjoyed doing that. So I may do it again yes, this please. year. But the, the three new projects that I have, uh, one is an ongoing, I'm thinking about a six-month period, uh, meeting about once a week online, where we look at the evolution of yoga with the emphasis on the practices. But what I want to do is bring the latest research. As I was saying, there's been so much yeah. academic research in, uh, in several key areas of yoga we have such a much better understanding of how yoga has evolved over time and this is it's taking a long time for all of this knowledge to percolate to you know the yoga studio environment and, and teacher training programs and so on they're way behind the curve yeah. so to be able to bring i'm going to prepare a reader for people where we share different readings every week and then we come together online and discuss that and where every week also we have assignments for practice so we can see how to enrich our own practices from what we are studying. And the idea is to cover the, basically the whole history of yoga. Yeah, I find I've done that in the past. I used to do a six-month course meeting once a week, and I find that the, the sustained, um, I don't want to say effort, but, but the sustained attention is so much better in terms of, of what you get you know, when, when it's over a long period of time rather than just a short thing. So that's the first project, is the, the evolution of yoga and the practices. 
Second one is to do online something that I've been doing for many years uh, in person, uh, which is, of course, I have on karma and also what happens after death. Mm. And this is, of course, what I'm bringing together both the traditional understanding mm. from the main uh, yoga traditions of India. Where they, they agree really about what karma is and how it works. I mean, there's some differences in how they explain it, but basically they agree on, on, on the basics. And also what happens after death, what happens when we die. This is super exciting also because there's a lot of modern research. Mm. I'm talking about academic research, believe it or not, on the topic of reincarnation. And I find it really fascinating how the new research is matching and dovetails very nicely what the ancient traditions have to tell us. Mm. So I have this course where I bring all of that together and again, bring a very practical application of all these uh, all these teachings particularly karma what it means how it works and and how can we uh, you know what what lessons do we draw from that and how can we become free from all that conditioning that we carry so that's going to be a new offering also uh, this year and then the third one is a relatively new course it's i've been offering it for about a year year and a half which is on sex, love, and yoga. Uh, these are really important topics that for many years I've been missing serious, mature discussions about sexuality, such an important topic. And often it's either treated just like in, in terms of something, sensuality, oh, let's explore, you know, sexual pleasure and so on, like there's nothing else in life but sexual pleasure, or uh, discussed from the viewpoint of scandals or things like that. But, but really, we need to look at sexuality as a, such a key area of our lives. What happens to it when you start a practice of yoga? What happens to it when you have a spiritual journey? Right? Mm. So here, the yoga tradition, particularly Hatha Yoga, has a lot to say about it that is super, super, super useful. And together with that is the topic of love. There's also another topic that is really cheapened by popular culture, you know, where we, we are taught to objectify another person as the source of love. And we are not taught how to get in touch with the love that is already in our heart. And what is love, really? Again, we very often we confuse love with all sorts of other things. So these are topics that I find very fruitful to explore. And again, have... In the, in the format of a dialogue as well, where there's a lot of interaction because many questions do come up about the, about these topics. So that's going to be a third offering. So I'm really excited about, about all of these projects. I'm really excited about all of those projects as well. <laughs> where can we find out? How can we pre-sign up or how can we tell you that we want them and how, where do we find them? Well, I'm going to be announcing this very soon on my website, which is my last name, pomeda.com. Uh, on the homepage there, we have a little button that says, you know, subscribe to our right, newsletter. Yes, yes. A newsletter because I don't like to send things all the time. Yeah. I, we all get too much email. <laughs> but every now and then when there's something new, we do send uh, an announcement like yes. that. So anybody who wants to keep up to date, uh, you can just sign up. It's very simple. And, and then you'll receive the news when we come up with a new course. I, I'm so excited about it. And, and also because I do find um, it hard to navigate. What's the, I'm going to use Amy language here, what's the good stuff and what's not the good stuff? And so I know that I can trust you as a source, Carlos, that you, you have the capacity to do that discernment on my behalf. So if I'm learning from you, 
<laughs> we're going more to the to the heart of things. You mean good stuff about uh, with information about yoga? Yeah, like what is what is what is more of a personal um, opinion and commentary versus what is like you were saying finding that line. Yeah, that's a really tough one because I find most popular sources and, and the popular sources that I'm familiar with on the internet, they tend to constantly mix up opinion and fact. Yep. It happens a lot. And again, talking about human psychology and cognitive studies, this is something we all do, you know, all of us. And so it's something that we really need to watch out for, that our brain is designed to fill in the gaps and we fill in the gaps of what we don't know with assumptions. Mm. Assumptions are made out of impressions that we form. They're not, uh, they don't have a factual basis. So this is just, it's, it's wired into our perception process, right? So because of that, when we write or when we teach, I always emphasize when I do teacher trainings, try to separate the two, like really make it a discipline to separate fact from interpretation. So for me, that's one of the areas where I was talking earlier about the critical reading that I do is one of the things I'm always looking out for. Is this person here expressing an opinion or are they still talking about facts? Yeah. It's easy to see the difference, right? Because uh, facts are facts. <laughs> you can go back and check them yourself. Uh, whereas opinions are formed out of facts. Um, and, and so that's something that sadly I find it's still not a discipline that pervades popular writing on yoga. So what I have been using a lot as a reference in terms of the good stuff is a website that I, I think you're familiar with, which is academia.edu. Uh, it's a website. It's actually a commercial website, but it's uh, sort of a repository where scholars from different disciplines can publish their materials. I'm a little concerned that recently I have seen materials being posted there that are not peer-reviewed, mm -hmm. having gone through that process. But still, I would say about maybe 96% of the stuff that you find in there is really good. Mm -hmm. So if you go to that website there, you can search for your keywords that you're interested in. You can say yoga, history of yoga, tantra, hatha yoga, kundalini, whatever. And you'll find relevant papers. And as I said, not all of it, because lately they have been just uploading stuff that is not really, hasn't gone through the same filters, the same quality controls, I should say. Uh, I'm a bit concerned about that for the future. But still, as of today, that's a really fantastic resource. And you have the best scholars from mm. academic mm. backgrounds, right? The best scholars in the field of yoga are publishing there. Uh, you have to be ready for the fact that, of course, that material is not written with a popular audience in mind. But the, the benefit is that what you get is really good stuff. So that's a, it's a resource that I use all the time. I'm, I'm really very, very, very happy that it's out there. Uh, you said that it's a commercial website, so that means you have to pay to yeah. use it, folks. And guess what? You uh, yes. have a business and this <laughs> could be a service that is going to support you. So... Don't be tight. Invest in yourself and your students. <laughs> yes, you know they offer um, they offer an option that is paid with advertising, and I, I absolutely detest that. I think that is the source <laughs> of many problems in our culture. You know the culture of Facebook, 
nothing is free and people trading with your information is a very, very dangerous proposition. Yeah. So I pay a subscription and I'm very happy to pay for it, a yearly subscription to this website so that I don't have to endure advertising and so that they don't track my activity. You know, you can keep your privacy. So I think it's a good idea to support endeavors like that. Yeah, yeah. And it pays for itself, in my opinion, because it's really, uh, there's so much, such a wealth of material. I mean, just today I was looking at a new paper that is exploring the connections between uh, Buddhism and Shaivism in the development of Hatha Yoga. This is really cutting edge stuff. And it's fascinating because it's answering some questions that I had when I was in India, looking at some of the architectural sites where you could see the, this connection between Buddhism and Shaivism, but nobody had explored it before. Huh. I was here. So this is just an example. I mean, something that I just found today itself, you know, just been published. And it's really good stuff like that. So wonderful, wonderful resource. What, give us the URL again, Carlos. Beg your pardon? What's the URL again for people to go find it? Academia.edu. Great, thank you. When I always, whenever I have the good fortune to be with you, I always leave feeling um, inspired about how we're actually still learning brand new things about something that is old. And that it's not simply, we're not actually just at a point where it's um, uh, interpretation and, and opinions. There is still more new things to be learned about old. I think that's really exciting. It is. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Carlos, it's just... in, the area of, uh, in the area of Hatha Yoga, there's a lot of study being done now, and it's really revolutionary stuff. And we really need to be open because for many years in teacher training programs, we've been receiving and passing on information that is outdated now. So it's really exciting. But we also have to be open and ready for all the new information that's coming down the line. And it's like any other profession. Like if I'm an accountant and there's changes to taxation law, I need to know what that is. Like you need to stay abreast of what's new. It's just part of being a, um, a, a, a competent professional. So our, our vocation is no different. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Super good, Carlos. Thank you, everybody. Go get on Carlos's uh, newsletter so that when he announces these courses, you're the second to sign up because I'm going to be first. Palmeda.com is a button if you're watching the video underneath. Thanks so much for taking time to be with us. It's just been a beautiful conversation. Thank you as well, Amy. It's so great to see you again and to talk to you. Oh, and folks, um, uh, we were going to just quickly mention this. The next time, I will hopefully, I'll be with Carlos, will be in Byron Bay at the end of July. So if you're yes. in Australia, come, hang out, eat too much woo-woo yoga fo food and enjoy learning with Carlos. <laughs> uh, I think it's, uh, you can probably, if you search for Creature Yoga, it's at Creature, creature Yoga. yoga yeah. it's great space. I do and also on there. my website on the ah. calendar, we've listed okay. there, it's uh, starting on the 27th of July. We're going to have a whole week of, of different workshops. So everybody in the south of Australia, you can get some slightly warmer weather, maybe. Maybe it's just going to rain. Who cares? We'll be inside learning lots with Carlos. Uh, I'll see you there. Thanks again. See you. Feeling inspired, ready to grow your own yoga business? If you're ready to share your yoga with the people who really need what you have to offer, growing your yoga business with more ease, flow, abundance, and support, check out my six-month yoga business training program, Growing Your Yoga Biz at amymcdonald.com.au forward slash growing your yoga biz. 
Use coupon code BIZOFYOGA when you check out for $500 off. Enrollments are open right now. Namaste.